Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Café with Ken Nix. Today it's an international edition and we're talking about England's place in the world. We've got representatives of all the interesting nations of the world. First we've got Wales, Hannah Williams. Shamai. We've got uh, Spain, Mexico and all Spanish-related places, <laughs> if we can stretch it that far, with Nicolas uh, Mariscal. And we've got France, Russia, Germany, Switzerland, everything uh, European, pretty much, uh, with Ellie Tomlinson. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't very foreign. So, we, yeah, so as, we, as I said, we're going to talk about England's place in the world. And we'll start with a sort of controversial but still cultural question, not going to get onto politics this quickly. So what do your respective nations really hate about the English? So I think what perhaps comes on top um, has got to be rugby. I mean, we cannot overlook that at all, especially with the looming Six Nations. Um, but I think it's quite a, a healthy uh, little rivalry we've got going on. Um, I think both respectively, both look forward to it, most definitely. Um, I'm sure Max Boyce's hymns and arias will be sung on the buses to the match. Um, and of course, Compromba and Delilah will be in full swing in all the pubs. But yeah, uh, what else? Well, we definitely, perhaps, I think we're being a bit um, double standard here, but they're sort of pride in their nation, which is, of course, completely important. But when it comes to perhaps hooliganism or the World Cup and their perhaps obsession, I'd say, with the World Cup, is something else we don't quite like. But you're still going to go to all the games. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Do we think there's like a, an English identity? Because, I mean, I mean, I put England's place in the world because... Basically, we have Hannah, who's Welsh, and we can't say the Britain's place in the world because that would include Wales. But do we think that England has an identity in itself? Like, does, do Wales consider themselves as a separate identity to England? We do indeed, yeah. Um, but of course, I'd say England themselves do have their own identity as well. Perhaps one would say that there is perhaps a stigma around England um, in the world, but I won't go on to that too much. I'll leave that to the rest. Um, but yeah, no, we definitely have our own identity. We are our own nation, our own country. And we're quite proud of that. Nicholas, do you hate the English? I'm not really. Well, you're biased. You live here, don't you? <laughs> I can't say. <laughs> no, but I think it changes, though, between Spanish-speaking countries. The perspective they have to the UK. For example, in Spain, they have more like this um, hooliganistic view of the English, which a bit like we have in Mexico with the Americans, and coming to get drunk in our country and so on. But from the Mexican perspective, we really quite like the English, in a sense. We look we see sort of the the idea of Englishness as like a very romantic, idealistic mm. way of life. If only. Yeah. If only. <laughs> if only. Is, is uh, Englishness romantic, Emily? Um, I wouldn't say romantic per se. I think the French have that under control. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, perhaps I think there are definitely stereotypes in terms of what Europeans think English people are like. They all, they all think um, what first comes to mind is um, tea, cake, biscuits, the queen, that kind of like royalty stereotype. Um, but I would definitely say there are things that the Europeans don't particularly like about the UK. One thing that always comes up is the food. Europeans hate English bread, um, so it has no taste, no flavour, no texture, which I can see both sides of the story there to be fair. Yeah, but I think on the whole, I wouldn't say that we're hated so much by um, Europeans, but perhaps on small little trivial bits of culture. Oh, fair enough. I, I think that's quite a nice reflection on the English. And do we think the... I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to get political. I can't help myself. It's, it's instinct. Do we think England's presentation in the world and Britain's presentation in the world is going to change? Is Wales going to become uh, the rest of the world to Britain soon enough? Uh, you know, post 
I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. Go post Brexit. I mean, it is it is happening. It might have happened already by the time you're listening to this. A scary thought, considering four years of uh, of talk about it. And um, but on a serious note, you know, do we think that England is viewed differently in the world now that we've got uh, this sort of separation from Europe, Nicholas? Completely, I think. From a me- Mexican perspective, you always see the English as you know a stable country, very sensible. Um, having an effective government with like the monarchy giving stability. And now with Brexit, it seems, oh gosh, they're, being, they're taking sort of populist policies as they do in many Latin American countries. Or you'd expect such as the delay jobs this process in France to go on, but you wouldn't really expect the English to go in such um, tangents. And I think that's really something that's changed the perspective of, from, from an international point of view, of the UK. Because before Brexit, so, oh, the UK, oh no, it's very nice. Uh, example of a representative democracy in the world, I would like to view like, and then after Brexit, like, gosh, what's going on there? We don't want to be like the English. <laughs> we still don't have riots, though. We just maintain a bit of that. Culture. Oh, completely, yes. And that's something which is very interesting about Brexit, because you have such um, big divisions in the country, but you never had the riots as, as a French. But you still had uh, the populist side both in the left and the right in the last election which you didn't used to see in, in the UK so much beforehand. Um, I mean, certainly speaking from a Russian perspective, full disclosure, by the way, I'm not completely English. I do have a Russian side to me. But <laughs> I know that like, the Russian media likes to focus on the sort of divisions in the previously uh, stable England and so on. But really still, the Russian sort of national perspective on England is still this sort of place of uh, milk and honey. It's a lovely place. It's a place where you want to send your kids. It's a top of the world. It's even better than America. It's got this culture. It's got the queen. It's got the people who stay still outside Buckingham Palace. You know, it's it's got gravy, you know? It, <laughs> it's that sort of thing. And do you think that's still staying in Mexico? Or do you think Brexit has gone beyond the political and instances of the cultural perception of England? Yeah, sort of seen as sort of irrational in that sense, in the English. Or before that, you say, oh, look, compared to the Americans, they're much more rational people. But something interesting about the perspective that we have internationally about England is coming to London. Sometimes, mm-hmm. very often, they say, oh, Nicholas going back to London. Like, they, they never think yeah. it's anything away from London or the M25. <laughs> and I think that's something very important. Yeah, perhaps to draw on that, um, what I was thinking is perhaps it hasn't overruled um, our sort of cultural expectations, especially in America. Um, it is something current and something now. But at the same time, um, as you say, when they say, oh, he's going to London, I actually have a campsite in West Wales. It's a beautiful place. I'd recommend going in our yeah. Um No, but <laughs> they, <plug>. yeah. <laughs> what they say is, you know what? Wales is one of my favourite places in England, or the best town in England. I think, well, perhaps they see the term as perhaps interchangeable <laughs> between United Kingdom and England. But again, it's this sort of idea that they perhaps think really strongly about the cultural aspect. And so it then becomes this whole thing to them. So no, I don't think it's completely overruled that at all, Brexit. Do you think that's the case for Europeans? Um, I think Brexit is a lot of, is basically what the Europeans are thinking of of England at the minute. Um, I think that perhaps it will, I don't want to say ruin relationships, but taint relationships. And as we were talking about before, um, I think Europeans used to see the, the British as quite reserved people. And now because of Brexit, everyone has an opinion. There's lots of different political arguments going on in everyday life that perhaps have shown a different part of the European, well, to the Europeans, a different part of the UK culture and perhaps has tainted their view slightly. I'm not saying that it's better or worse, I'm just saying that it has changed. 
God, we have opinions now. What next? <laughs> I mean, but there is something sort of long-standing implications of, of Brexit. There's a recently been something passed about uh, the Erasmus scheme, uh, which sort of scheme. I mean, Ellie will know more about this than me as a modern language student, but it's a scheme providing access and finance for European students of all the European countries to travel to other European countries and sort of experience the culture, the language, and so on. And that's uh, the UK is pulling out of that. Is that right? Um. We can't, we, don't, we can't say for sure what's going to happen just yet, but in the first week of January, um, the MPs voted by quite a significant majority that they wouldn't be required, they wouldn't be required to have a clause in the um, Brexit withdrawal um, bill that they would negotiate an Erasmus deal. So what that basically says to us now is that the UK can't decide whether they want to continue or not. Um, and I think, to be honest, that's quite that's a shame. There's plenty of MPs like Leila Moran from the Liberal Democrats party who has been campaigning for a change in this and that it's completely unfair for the, the generations of the future because they haven't really had a say in what goes on with Erasmus and the Brexit withdrawal agreement. Um, however, we do have to look at the other side of the story and say, well, um, European exchanges happened before we were part of the European Union and so likely they're going to happen again afterwards. But it's just the case of basically seeing what happens when we come out of the EU and after the sort of like delaying actually coming out. Yeah, but perhaps it's a sort of negative hit to the already sort of arrogant attitude that British people have about English people have, sorry, uh, about the world and about how the English language rules the world and we're sort of number one because we've got English and we don't need to learn any other language because we've got English and everyone else speaks English. If I go to Europe, I don't need to speak uh, uh, Spanish to the Spaniards when I go to Ibiza. I'll just, talk, I'll just talk in English. They'll understand me. Isn't that basically the attitude? It's very much the attitude, yeah. It's quite a naive perspective and I think that's sort of portrayed through the um, through this majority that we saw with the vote from the MPs um, as they turn away from language learning and culture in, in schools in particular, it's now lo no longer compulsory to learn their second language after the age of 14, which I personally think is a real shame. I'm sure Hannah would agree as well as a first language yes. speaker. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that really does like epitomise exactly what's going on. Um, yeah, it's a naive standpoint. Again, I'm trying to be not so biased as a language student, but uh, the other, other side of this story is that a lot of people will say, well, it's not really clear what second language an English person should speak. So, for example, because Europe, um, Europeans see English as the, the language of the world, it can be often difficult to, for a school to decide whether they're going to study French, Spanish, German. Um, so there's that side of the story as well, but it does definitely take um, our reputation as a nation um, in terms of Europeans' point of view. Well, the Russian perspective has always been learn the language of your enemy. So you used to, my grandparents know German very well and my parents know English very well. That's, that's sort of how it happens. Um, and I suppose in, by that logic, we should be learning sort of Persian or yeah, Arabic or yeah. something. But one language that has certainly experienced a revival in the United Kingdom is Welsh since devolution in uh, 1997. Wales has experienced this incredible sort of revival of a language that was uh, deemed to be dying in the in the 90s. And now it's on all the signs and you have some random people come to Durham University who learn their entire education in some foreign language. Well, Max, <laughs> um, actually, perhaps to clarify a point, it was perhaps in 1588 with William Morgan's Bible, um, it was actually Elizabeth's idea to control the Welsh um, on a perhaps more religious standpoint, um, by converting the Bible into Welsh. But in doing so, what actually happened was there was a massive revival in the literature. This brilliantly written Bible um, was, of course, read every day. And in fact, it wasn't read by the English Bible side by side. What ended up happening is they'd learned a better quality Welsh. 
And so we should be extremely thankful, believe it or not, to Elizabeth wow. back in the day. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, definitely. Um, it has seen a revival, which is absolutely brilliant. I think we should carry on doing this. But yeah, no, there's this joke about a farmer. So he's tending his flock when he saw a man drinking with a cupped hand by his stream. And he thinks, right, I need to tell this man to not drink from there because it's full of cow poop. So he goes up to him and he says, right, don't drink from there because it's dirty. You don't want to be doing that. And he goes, sorry, I can't hear you. Goes a bit closer and he says again, don't drink from the stream. You know, why do this? And he's going, I can't hear you, sorry. Can you say it again? And he does it again. Goes right up to him, taps him on the shoulder. And the man goes, I'm dreadfully sorry, good man, but I can't hear you. Do you mind speaking in English? He goes, oh, I see, said the man. I was just saying, if you use both hands, you can get more in. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Welsh language is an interesting case because when the case for devolution was made, it was always the, the perception of the sort of the Blair government and so on that we're doing this because uh, it's fair and we want to promote a culture and so on. And it's also because we don't want an angry neighbouring nation demanding independence, like, for example, Catalonia. We don't want that at all, and so what we're going to do is we're going to give them a little bit of devolution. I mean, Catalonia's got devolution as well, but we're going to give them a, a devolution, we're going to give them the right to have their own culture. But what seems to have happened is this increased demand for independence, especially from Scotland. Scotland is what, is, is what people focus on, because there's been a referendum and so on. No Welsh independence referendum so on. Uh, so far. Do we think it's going to happen in the near future? Welsh independence referendum? I don't think we should rule it out. That's what I'm definitely saying. Um, I think we should work towards it. So yeah, keeping Welsh language going is very important. But at the same time, um, we don't actually have full devolved power currently. It's only on a limited number of issues. So that would definitely be the next step, getting more devolved power um, and then go from there. So yeah. You know, how England has dealt with its, its neighbours is a big contrast to how Spain has dealt with its uh, cultural minorities. You know, we've seen uh, Lisa Nandio, a candidate for the Labour leadership, talk about uh, devolution in a recent interview with Andrew Neil, and she she mentioned Catalonia as a sort of effective example of how we should deal with Scotland, which uh, the SNP weren't particularly happy about. Do we think uh, the uh, the uh, Catalonia issue has been very well dealt with, Nicky? Yeah, well, I don't think so, quite. I think it's, there's a big difference to understand between uh, the evolution in Catalonia and where in in Wales and Scotland. The thing with the world governments at the end, they are countries, and they used to be countries and they are part of the United Kingdom. While in Spain, they are autonomous regions and were never a country, especially in the day of Catalonia. Catalonia used to be part of the Kingdom of Aragon, and then they suddenly created this identity of Catalonia. My family is Catalonian, and in Mexico, we still speak some of us in Catalan family. But we see these politicians trying to bring these uh, sort of independent movements and ideas that try to get away from the real issues, which are the economic issues. And they are sort of blaming the Spanish government for taking a, very, a bit similar with the Brexit um, argument of why are taxes going to poorer regions, poorer in Spain, like Murcia, and et cetera, et cetera, and Andalusia, and so on, like in the UK, saying, oh, well, you should go to Greece or Poland. So it's sort of thing with taxes, but they're trying to create this sort of identity and trying to get really as far away and as divisive as possible from the Spanish uh, government. And they're trying to bring these wounds back from the civil war. For example, my, my family, they experienced both sides. Some of them were fighting in the um, Republican side and some in the Franco side. But now everyone seems to come back and really not talk about it. But now with all these scars coming out from the war, like into these big divisions, and you see the talk between the Spanish government and the Catalonian government going further and further apart. And I think something to really bear in mind. And another interesting bit is the education in, in Spain. 
Well, in the UK, you have standardized system with A-levels or in France with BAC. In Spain, no, you don't. It's evolved into the regions. So each region has its own system, the regional system. And it can be quite dangerous in some systems, some regions, such as Catalonia, to have to change history to promote their own political games, such as calling the Kingdom of Aragon the Catalonian Aragonian Kingdom, which never really came about. Yeah. So I think it's been very badly dealt with the Spanish government by, in a way, giving too much devolution to Catalonia, while at the same time with Franco giving too little. So having that balance, because it seems to went to an extreme with Franco, trying to repress the Catalonian language and, and so on, and it's now going to the other extreme. So I think it has to come to a compromise. I don't really see our differences and the wounds from the war. We really try to come together, both sides, the Spanish and the Catalonian. The Spanish who say, look, we understand you, you, are, um, you are different people, you know, but you are still Spanish in that sense. And not to draw away these differences, but try to see what we have in common together. Because you don't see this sort of uh, independence movement in, our, in Aragon, which definitely have a greater history of an independent kingdom. Yeah, well, let's talk about rewriting history, because I think that's something that's, I mean, it's always happened throughout history. You know, the victors always write history and so on. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so much easier now, especially in when you have sort of devolved education systems or when you have countries that are controlling education. It's a dangerous uh, precedent, rewriting history. Do we think, I mean, Europe has always historically been at war with itself. I mean, that's what it's done. It's always fought itself. I mean, Belgium, I think, has got the, has the most battles in history, recorded battles in history. I think that's the, the stat. Europe has always been at war with itself. And now, the last sort of 70, 80 years, there's this message of European unity. And it seems to have gone down remarkably well. Thanks to the European Union. Mm, yeah, thanks, to, exactly thanks to perhaps the European Union, which, which now we're leaving. But, you know, it's this, it's this European unity. Do we think that that European unity is starting to disintegrate again? I would definitely say so, yes. Um, So the point of the European Union was basically to ensure that there was peace across the continent. And I think especially for the German nation, that was particularly important for them as they were really keen on making a new sort of reputation for themselves and not as a reputation of sort of war starters and etc. I do think, yeah, that because of our withdrawal from the European Union, that perhaps it shows there's less solidarity with the, with our sort of neighbouring countries. But on the whole, I would definitely say that the European Union has helped stop wars. I think that it's created a, um, a much closer discourse between our neighbouring countries that was perhaps never there before. Um, and perhaps one could argue as well that, that these were the causes of some of the wars of the, the 19th century. Um, yeah, in general, I think that that was that's what people think now that we're sort of like saying actually no we don't want to be part of this peacemaking agreement instead we want to be our own thing our own nation um and in germany germany in particular um, there's a phrase can't exactly remember the phrasing but they basically said we want to we want to be more we want to have like an extra sausage i think they say they always say that the, the english people have to they're going to have to be better and now that meant for them as leaving the european union um to sort of show actually, we don't rely on you, um, which is quite interesting, really, because the European Union has done a lot for English people, um, young people, old people. I think a friend of mine said that there would be no Welsh motorways without the European Union. I don't know how true that is. That fits in, Ali, into the whole narrative about, uh, about the EU now. And maybe, actually, we just jumped off a sinking ship in time. Mm-hmm. Maybe the UK got out in time, and now, you know, the AFD in Germany 
and the populist party, the, you know, the five-star movement, Northern League in Italy, you got your, you got your Hungary, you got your Poland, they're all rebelling against the EU, and we just got out in time. Maybe that's a narrative that we should be talking about now that we're leaving. I think mean, sort of. I think after the European perspective on different countries living in the European Union has changed with Brexit. I think they realise what a big mess actually is, and the benefits of the European Union have become more aware across the continent. Beforehand, there is the early European Union, there it is. And I said, oh, look what they've actually done for us. Mm-hmm. And an interesting, interesting thing, I think, is uh, it's in European countries. And the whole debate came beforehand whether they should accept these old communist um, countries in the European Union. And I think that has great, ha- helped greatly for European integration ahead of these eastern European countries and become much more united and less divisive. But with the English, there's something interesting. I think since the time of the Reformation, they often tried to be uh, different from the Europeans. Mm-hmm. And they could never bear that um, someone in, in Europe, whether it's Rome in the Reformation or Brussels, are taking uh, money from their taxes and are making the decisions that they would like to be made by their own in their country. So that detachment from Europe has always been around. Uh, yeah, so but you're, you're certainly right as well about eastward expansion of the EU and, that, and the EU and NATO in particular. Mm-hmm. And that was always seen as a as a threat to Russia, and maybe yeah. that is a big mistake of you know historically. If we look back at it, maybe that is a big mistake of the EU and of NATO doing that eastward expansion, threatening Russia, Russia becoming this power that we don't want to deal with, and at the same time making the EU unsustainably large and having Germany basically funding all these uh, all these countries which the EU has now expanded into. And, you know, especially the case with Greece, although that might be an exception because Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, sort of manipulated their figures to get them in in the first place. But uh, don't sue me, Goldman Sachs. <laughs> I, I, that's my personal opinion. Um, but that Eastern expansion, it was perhaps unsustainable and perhaps a terrible foreign policy decision in the, in the long term. At the same time, these Eastern European countries, on the face of it, have become reasonably uh, thriving democracies if we look at the world stage and so you know their development was largely thanks to uh, european integration so you can sort of look at it uh, both ways um yeah just to add to that as well um perhaps you could talk about um how germany puts in the most most into the european union and for what it puts in gets significantly released from it Whereas Luxembourg gets the most out of it, um, considering the amount of money that it puts in. So that creates quite an interesting narrative about the value of the EU to these Western um, these Western economic powerhouses, particularly Germany, because it's clear for them that they're not doing it for economic purposes, more to, to improve their reputation on a European standpoint. A lot of people said that when it became one nation again after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was important that... Um, it did become an economic powerhouse on the European stage. So it's quite an interesting narrative when you think about um, its relevance in the European Union. As well, to add to that, we could talk a little bit about the Gilets Jaunes because um, obviously they're not quite sure what they were fi- they're fighting about between themselves. It started um, because of increases in tax, but a lot of them now are actually campaigning for Brexit. So that links back to what you were saying about whether they've just got off a sinking ship or not. And mm. um, that are all the European countries that are considering it. Um, but perhaps it's like less beneficial for Western powerhouses um, because they get less out of it than the new members of the European Union that are expanding eastwards. Yeah, certainly this idea of European unity seems to have 
broken down in, in, to a large extent, and people are suddenly realizing that this sort of ever closer union perhaps isn't a good idea for the particular country, and that has fed into the sort of populist narrative. So let's bring it back to opinions about England. Do we think England will thrive after Brexit? Well, I think it's great with repercussions. You know, England is leaving the, the EU, especially that these sort of nationalistic um, views are growing across uh, the continent, both in the UK and uh, across the world. And something very dangerous and something the European Union really helped on those kind of stereotypes. But now the Union is a great risk now living in the UK, especially in, in Scotland and I don't know, Wales and even, even Northern Ireland. So the future of England itself as, as a country is safe. And also the, the way its relationship with the US is quite, is quite an interesting one. There's always this sort of love relationship with, uh, with England and with all the English things. But as well, some of the um, uh, foreign policy the UK has is more in line with the European Union than it is with the, uh, with the US. So it sort of, can be seen sort of stuck in the middle. Okay, let's, let's leave on a jolly note. Let's yeah. leave on a nice yeah, yeah. jolly note since we've been talking about how horrible England is. But let's have an opinion from uh, all four cultures, or maybe five or six, depending how you count it, cultures around the table today. What do we think is uh, good about England and will not go anytime soon? Rich culture, rich history. Um, in terms of like, if we compare that to America, which hasn't obviously existed as long, I think that's something that can't be taken away from us. I, I'd go for uh, English bread. I think that's, <laughs> that's not going to get any better, right? Yeah. <laughs> go full circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, English, yeah, English bread's not going to go anywhere. So, sport is a big thing, um, international-wise, from the, from the England especially. Both um, I don't know, horse riding, uh, cricket. Well, cricket, funny enough, is a second the sport most played in the world after football. Yeah, yeah. expect that, yeah. It's a big thing. Right, I'm going to go out there and say it. Fish and chips. Fish and chips, oh, and chips. yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll stay, that'll stay, absolutely. And on that bombshell, <laughs> on the fish and chips bombshell, by the way, if you want some amazing fish and chips, I've got, I've got a plug, Durham fish and chips. Oh. Incredible fish and chips. Um, oh, ne never had anything like Thank you for tuning in to episode four of Cafefe with Kendix, a more international edition. Tune in next time for more politics, culture, and discussion. But for now, goodbye. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.